You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon. If you're in this part of the world, or good morning, or good evening, if you're in other parts of the world, uh, my name is Professor Des O'Neill, and along with Professor Mary Cosgrove of the Department of German. I co-chair the Medical and Health Humanities here in the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is a centre for research and postgraduate education um, involving all parts of the arts and humanities faculties in Trinity College, Dublin. You're very welcome to our seminar this morning. This is the longest running series of Medical and Health Humanities in Ireland, and we'll give you details of our next one at the end. Uh, we're very pleased to have a very large uh, participation today, both live here in the Long Room Hub and on Zoom. Uh, all questions and comments, please, will be through chat, the chat function, Q&A, and we'll manage these at the end. So um, we're particularly delighted to have today with us um, Evie Newman, who is the curator of the Old Anatomy Museum in the School of Medicine at Trinity College Dublin. Uh, Trinity College Dublin has the oldest uh, continuous medical school in uh, the Republic of Ireland. And we're fortunate that Evie, who has been uh, a Master of Fine Arts from the University of Pennsylvania, but has held the position in one of the most prestigious medical museums in the world, the Mutter Museum at the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, um, is now working with us here in Trinity around um, conservation and development of a, the Museum of Anatomy in School of Medicine in Trinity College Dublin. So we're really pleased to have Evie talking today with us, talking with the dead narratives from the old anatomy museum. Evie, thank you. Thank you so much, Desmond, and thank you, Shelby, for inviting me. So hi, everyone. I'm Evie Newman. Uh, I'm the cur curator of the Old Anatomy Museum at Trinity College Dublin. Uh, thank you, Desmond, for the kind introduction. I started work there in 2018. Um, and of course, the pandemic robbed us of a few, a uh, couple of years of intent more intense work. Uh, but since then, we have been trying to catalog, conserve, and curate the Old Anatomy collection. Uh, the Old Anatomy Collection is the heritage collection of the medical school here in Trinity, and it dates all the way back to the founding of the school in, oops, in 1711. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the museum, the history of the collection, but also introduce you first to the history of medical museums. And some of you probably know that museums oh, such as ours, uh, such as natural history museums, originated in the 1500s. There are records of them earlier on, but the first, the very first depiction we have is this uh, collection in Italy of, of a, a gentleman. And you may notice that every available surface is covered um, with specimens. Uh, there is a library as part of the collection there are wet specimens um, at the bottom and a, a couple of tiny lions. I'm not sure what's happening there, but there they are. Um, and then we have this depiction a uh, hundred years later that continues this tradition of a cabinet of wonder, a cabinet of curiosities. And by the word curiosity, we don't necessarily mean oddness, but we mean that which can provoke wonder. And that's very much part of what our collection is about. Now, um, at the very, very back of this lithograph, you'll see a long building with a little chimney right, right in front of the um, thicket of trees there. And that is the old anatomy house. It was, there it is. It was <clears throat> um, designed by Thomas Berg the famed architect that also designed the uh, Richmond Barracks. And it was erected in 1711, the donation of Sir Patrick Dunn. And this is the only uh, surviving depiction of the interior of the Anatomy Museum uh, version of the time. Uh, this is circa 1819, and it shows um, 
a very large skeleton of, of a whale that we're still trying to piece together, um, as well as uh, some of the remains that I will be talking about today. Um, this is very much designed in the, the style of uh, the 18th and 17th century. You have this kind of labyrinthine um, auditorium with a table in the middle, and that's where the anatomy dissection would be taking place. Mm -hmm. Around the area, there are specimens, cabinets with specimens, including human remains and animal remains. This is very much the era of comparative anatomy. Um, I should give you a little uh, warning, a little uh, content advisory, I should say, because if you're here from perhaps an accountancy lecture, um, you might not be prepared to see human remains. Um, we do only present human remains in context, and this is intended to be an educational talk. So I will be showing images, photographs of human remains, primarily skeletal. So you'll be seeing skulls and skeletons. Um, and I will also be showing a single specimen of a wet um, preserved uh, tissue. If at any point you want to leave the room, avert your eyes, that's perfectly fine. Most of us, most people have not seen human remains in their skeletonized form or their preserved form. Um, and we have to remember that what I'm about to show you is what is inside us. Um, hopefully we're all healthy, but a lot of us are not. A lot of us have chronic illnesses. A lot of us have uh, genetic differences. And the collection presents the most um, obvious of those. It was collected very much at a time where other uh, teaching aids were not available. We didn't have x-rays, we didn't have 3D uh, imaging or anything of that sort. So what medical educators had to do was to rely on specimens and cadavers and hands-on dissection, which we still do um, because it is, there is nothing like actually studying the human body um, and they also had a great collection of illustrations. I'll be showing some illustrations that depict patients with fairly deforming diseases. Um, unfortunately, some of those are relevant to us today. So I think it's important to show um, their histories and then their narratives. Um, the earliest part of the collection uh, dates to 1739, the earliest that we can actually prove and substantiate. And it's this, what was once a famed collection of wax models. Uh, this is a wax uh, model of um, a patient, presumably actually modeled after uh, the person whose skull supports the wax. So if you see at the very top, um, there is a little bit of bone picking out. And a lot of these kinds of wax models uh, survive all over uh, Europe. And people are finding that indeed they use skeletal remains to model the wax. So they carry, they're more than just an object. Um, and I think they're quite beautiful. We're trying to conserve them. The reason it's in this condition is because the famed collection that we received in 1739 from uh, the Earl of Shelburne uh, from London um, was destroyed over the years. It was used by students very extensively and after a certain point in time in the 19th century was deemed inaccurate and thus not um, reliable for medical education. And indeed they had some fairly inaccurate depictions of um, especially female anatomy. So at this point, we only have fragments. Um, I mentioned the anatomy house in 1711. In 1825, uh, the anatomy house, the floors are deemed to be very um, unsafe. And Professor, oops, why are these out of order? Sorry, Professor of Anatomy, James McCartney, um, gathers 
support and funds to um, urge the the Trinity College to erect a new anatomy building, and that is James McCartney there. He was extremely popular, and part of his reasoning for having a new building was I couldn't fit all my adv admirers, all my students. Uh, you see, we have letters that uh, he explains that there are people just standing by the door. They can't see. We need bigger lecture theaters for, for my students. Um, I'm just going to stay back for a second. So on the very side, um, you have the very side on my right, you have the School of Anatomy in 1887. Beyond that, and it's not easily photographable from outside, is our museum. And it's encased in the 1887 uh, structure, uh, but it still dates to 1825, and it was erected solely for the purpose of housing McCartney's collection. Uh, there's a whole story there, and I will briefly mention it. Um, so McCartney was not only a brilliant lecturer, but he was an activist. He recognized that the um, popularity of medicine in general, of medical education, and the rising numbers of students created a very big problem in supplying the, the medical schools in Dublin and everywhere in Europe. Everyone seemed to, to have the same problem at the same time um, with cadavers, with uh, bodies for the students to study on. And this is where this illustration comes in. Um, on the smaller picture, you have a kind of cage over, over an internment, and this is from an Irish cemetery. And the reason for that was to prevent the acts of the men depicted um, behind that, uh, getting a corpse, getting a freshly uh, buried uh, remains out of the, the grave and selling it subsequently to the medical schools for dissection. So the um, popularity of medical schools and the, the dearth of available, legally available uh, bodies creates this very thriving black market. In Dublin specifically, we also have the added issue of uh, people exporting bodies over to Edinburgh and Glasgow and such. So you have Creating, you're creating a very, very high demand for a very, very small supply. So McCartney recognizes this problem and actually even gets embroiled in a, in a scandal of his own. Um, and that's a whole other story, but we don't have four hours here. Um, so what he does is quite uh, impressive. He talks to all his friends, all his colleagues, um, the, the highest strata of Dublin society, but also the students, the educators, and he gathers signatures for them to support the 1832 Anatomy Act, which is to say that people can donate their bodies for the purpose of dissection, for the purpose of uh, medical education, and also to legalize, to, to streamline the process of procuring uh, cadavers from uh, workhouses, uh, from people that didn't have next of kin or couldn't afford to bury their loved ones, um, poor houses, asylums, uh, hospitals in some cases, um, and also the bodies of criminals, the bodies of executed criminals are very much legal and available for, for dissection. So he creates this, this legal framework for the time, which to us, of course, is very much not about consent. Uh, we live in a very different world, luckily, um, but it's still legal within his, within his framework and it's still much better than rave robbing in the middle of the night and the um, relatives, the grieving relatives having to safeguard and, and stand guard over the freshly uh, dead person that they lost. Um, and that is a little clipping from a newspaper uh, kind of showing, showing the announcement of this act. And one of my favorite little quotes from it is, 
to deal with the erroneous opinions and vulgar prejudices which prevail with regards to dissection will be most effectually removed by practical examples. So he says that the people that are opposed to dissection are prejudiced and don't understand the world of medical science. So it's a very elitist, very, um, uh, very much a view of, of up high, but he does have um, a point that it's impossible to teach anatomy, especially at this time, without bodies available for dissection. So moving fast forwarding to 1887, there is, um, this is the interior view of our dissection hall. And the, the quotes there talks about how specimens surround the dissection hall in typical presentation, meaning they are um, of typical uh, form. The anatomy is, is uh, typical, there is no pathology, and the students can refer to better dissections than their own to inform their lessons. Uh, this is an interior of our um, museum in 1887 as well. Uh, it looks very close to that now. Unfortunately, we don't have these lovely study um, benches. Uh, the the specimens in, in the bell jars are uh, perfect dissections, skeletal specimens or wax models so that students could put their notebook in the, the little um, desk and, and study them more specifically. So they were, every bit of the museum is designed for, for medical education. Uh, but if anyone knows where those, those benches are, please contact me. Uh, this is a view of the museum of the lower level in 1933. So it very much remains the same. And in 2011, we have, um, and I know this is kind of a stark contrast between the two, uh, we have the 300 years of the medical school. And on the, that occasion, there is the erection of the Trinity Biomedical Sciences Institute building over on Pierce Street. And these are some of the high-tech uh, facilities they have there. So the medical school leaves the, the 1887 building that still exists, thankfully, and moves to TBSI. Upon doing so, they find boxes and boxes and tea chests and uh, every container imaginable of human remains. They find this collection, which is the Anthropometric Laboratory, which you may have uh, heard of recently. Uh, this collection was under the lecture theater, kept under the lecture theater, and studying newspapers and packing material of the time, we know that this packing and removal of the collection from the uh, accessible spaces to students happened in, in 1948. So between 1948 and 2011, we don't really have a good idea of what the collection involves. Now we're trying to, to make sense of that. So this is a little graphic I made for our um, entry in the Museum Standard Program of Ireland, which we recently entered very, uh, and we're very grateful for that. And it shows kind of the um, ratios of types of collections within. So we have uh, specimens in the green, ephemera and archives of paper-based material in the yellow. Um, we have a lot of artwork. We have beautiful illustrations and printed material um, of uh, anatomy and pathology. And we have artifacts. So our models are, uh, small selection of instruments. And this is the museum today, the lower gallery. And this is our lecture theater today. Uh, the lecture theater was refurbished in 1956. So it has very much a mid-modern uh, decor, but it does date to 1887 along with the rest of the surrounding building. Now, the most important question we can ask here 
is why this historical medical collection, parts of which are very much damaged, they're fragmentary, why is this relevant today? Why does it matter to us? And the first answer to that is that beyond everything else, it contains human remains of people that lived in the past and people that informed the medical education, medicine as we know it in Ireland and beyond is founded on these collections. It's developed on collections such as these. Um, so we believe that the best thing we can do is share this collection, share the history, and also research the collection as much as we can, find the stories within it. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about the individuals whose uh, remains are portrayed here. And the perhaps the first uh, case that, that will grab your attention is in the middle, and that contains the skeleton of Cornelius McGrath, our own Irish giant. Um, Cornelius uh, died in 1760. And he suffered from a condition called gigantism or acromegaly. In his case, as was found by later research, the condition was a result of a pituitary uh, tumor. So a tumor um, against his pituitary gland, the uh, gland that uh, secretes growth hormones and is very much responsible for uh, human development. Um, so this, this uh, tumor caused his um, gland to over-secrete, uh, to secrete an excess of hormones that caused this very dramatic growth spurt. Uh, so he's reported to be a normal boy, and that's a, that's a quote from one of the um, documents we have about him, up until the age of 15. And then he starts growing uncontrollably. Um, owing to, to the stature of individuals with this condition, which is rare, but not extremely rare. Um, owing to their stature, there was the belief at the time that they were not only very tall and, and very impressive in their height, but also impressive in strength. They are seen as almost superhuman, and they're often put alongside uh, soldiers um, and such. In reality, unfortunately, the condition causes a lot of heart issues, a lot of circulatory issues, um, and a lot of lung and, and respiratory issues. So you see his rib cage was very extended during his life, and he also has quite a lot of scoliosis. Um, of course, the growth spurt, this kind of dramatic growth spurt, uh, causes a lot of pain as well, so joint pain. Um, mobility issues. So, it, by no means was he um, uh, was he a, a strong uh, superhuman, um, but because of his stature, he exhibited himself uh, around Europe. So he traveled around Europe uh, at the time, and here he is in Venice, um, and that is a typical position for, for giants in the uh, 18th century. And you see in the back uh, people in Venetian masquerade uh, costumes. And this is a portrait that we found in, I believe, um, the National Gallery there. Uh, so we have an idea of what he looked like, which is lovely. Now, we see the skeleton, we see the portrait. These um, the humanity of Cornelius kind of gets lost in time. So between the 18th and the 19th century, even though you have research using his example, you don't have enough of the story to, to really tell and to um, piece together his narrative. So Dr. Daniel John Cunningham uh, comes along and he... In 18, this is in 1891, and he does extensive research to piece the story and also to find the portraits I just shared with you. Um, and he goes a bit further by studying and um, carefully measuring 
uh, Cornelius's remains to determine that indeed the uh, cause of his of his condition was a pituitary tumor. So he measures the inside of of his cranium and he sees that the area where the pituitary gland would sit was greatly enlarged. So because of the shape, he can make he can make that assumption, and that is indeed. Um, later proved in, in our century uh, through DNA analysis. We know that he doesn't have the giant gene, so-called. He doesn't have the gene that causes this condition, but his condition is very much the result of the tumor he had. He also went a bit further. Uh, Cornelius's skeleton was destroyed and partially, uh, partially fragmented over time. So to restore him, um, to restore his remains in their completeness, and I believe to uh, do respect to him, he commissioned what must have been a very talented woodworker to create these wooden replicas that are almost seamlessly um, collaged into his skeleton, and it's quite remarkable. Um, so there are a few more than the ones I'm showing you, but you see he has um, toes that are, that are wooden. Um, his clavicle is entirely wooden, and the other one is beautifully um, repaired with, with a wood replica. Um, this is Brendan Holland. He's an individual who suffers with uh, the same condition as, as Cornelius, um, although I believe he does have the, the giant gene. And he visited Cornelius to really see um, what his interior looks like. And that is one of the um, kind of remarkable benefits of a collection like this. It's one thing to, to see what your condition looks like in x-rays. It's another thing to be able to walk around the remains of an individual that shared the same struggles. Um, so Brendan very much supports uh, the continued display and research of Cornelius's remains. Now, you may notice, just as a side note, that I go between referring to his remains and referring to Cornelius as if he's the skeleton. I very much know that he's not. Um, but because bodies and remains and whether they are uh, beautifully dissected or not, they exist in this liminal space between what is um, inanimate, what is, you could say, an object, and it's very much, very much not an object. So it's very hard for us who work with them to not refer to them by name. Um, and in some cases, we do know their names. We know their life histories. Uh, this is James Conway, Shelby's favorite. Um, so James Conway is depicted in the photograph uh, on the side with a little dog on his lap. He died um, in a workhouse and I believe the picture was taken there. And he reached 107 years of age he did not have next of kin because he managed to outlive them all. Uh, his son died at 85 and he just kept on, kept on going. Um, that, uh, Dr. Cunningham is the one that studied his skeleton and procured his skeleton from the workhouse and studied him. And you see on the side, a post-mortem plaster cast next to um, James's skeleton. And that shows a dissection um, of the skull to show the um, brain. And Cunningham's incentive in doing this was to very carefully study and measure the condition of his brain, 107 years old. He knew from the attending physician of James before he passed that he passed um, with almost perfect health. Uh, he only had um, a kidney infection, I believe, up to three weeks before his death, and he declined then. But prior to that, he had perfect health and he had perfect uh, cognition. So he did not lose his memory as he aged. 
um, which is quite remarkable. And you can see that in the health of his skull. And Cunningham um, describes that there's no atrophy, that the skull looks healthy um, in every aspect. And he wanted to document that as he was working in a big project, the topographic um, atlas of the human brain. And he studied primate brains as well, um, as well as uh, brains of people in different ages. Now, this is just, again, a reminder that we are very much skeletons contemplating other skeletons. We are all future corpses. I know it's a, a hard thing to, to realize and a hard thing to really imagine, but that is the one thing that unites us um, all. Back to, to another patient. This is, um, this is the portrait, the portrait um, life, life watercolor drawing of a woman that suffered with a very, very uh, enlarged uh, cystic tumor of the breast. And she uh, was painted and her picture was uh, published in journals, as you see um, on the side. And we know from, from her case history that she had a tumor that was 13 pounds she had it for 14 years. Why? Because at the time, it was absolutely dangerous for her to undergo um, the removal of the tumor and to undergo surgery. There is no uh, antiseptic measures. The hygiene in um, surgery is, by our standards, absolutely horrific. Um, anesthesia is not quite there yet. Um, so she risked blood loss, she risked infection, and finally the tumor became too cumbersome and too painful for her to continue on this way. So she underwent surgery, and you see on the side that is the uh, one wet specimen I'm sharing with you that shows a similar tumor at a much uh, smaller scale of a breast. Um, with polycystic um, presentation. She did survive the surgery um, at least two weeks after. We would love to just follow these, um, these people and just to learn more about their, their stories. We are lucky in the sense that the 19th century physicians did write a lot of patient histories. They shared what the patient did, how many children they have, whether they were married, where they lived. And that is a privacy concern for us, and rightly so. But through this lens, we can really learn about the, the past um, inhabitants. Um, this is another quite remarkable story. This is William Clark. Um, if you... Uh, if you were my students, I would ask you, what do you think that his condition uh, was? And his remains show a very, very rare, very um, difficult to live with condition called, at the time, myositis ossificans, um, muscle ossification. Today, this condition affects 700 to 800 people uh, around the world. And it is now called fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, uh, FOP for short. And that means progressive fiber displacement because over time doctors found that it wasn't just muscle that was getting turned into bone. It was every other kind of fiber uh, of the body except for skin and uh, keratin. So he has over time developed a second skeleton and this is very much the position that he was in when he passed. Um, his skeleton is uh, part of um, just seven around the world. And the, there is ongoing research in this, in this condition and we have two skeletons that can help that research. Um, the presentation of the way the, the muscles uh, get ossified um, 
is much easier to study in a skeletal form than to study in x-rays, than to even study in 3D imaging. Uh, the texture, things like that, that you cannot reproduce accurately in any other way. So William, um, we know a bit about his life as well. We know that he um, was a night watchman at the end of his life, because that is the really one of the few things that he could do to support himself. Um, and this is a photograph of a patient in Germany uh, with the same condition, and you see the growths on the back. Now, um, this is a kind of autoimmune condition almost. It is triggered by trauma. So every time that you have, let's say, a cut or on the muscle or a sprain, instead of the appropriate cells coming to repair that damage, you get bone cells, um, bone growing cells. So the growths in the back um, and around the body are very hard to diagnose because very few people, even today, very few physicians know about this condition at all. So to make sense of it, they even now with x-rays, they will cut into the body to perhaps remove um, the growth that they see on, on a baby or, or a child. And that triggers more trauma and a cascading reaction of more bone. Um, this is a skeleton with the same condition, our, our second, the same condition. It belonged to a woman that, whose name we don't know. Um, and actually, sorry, the date is, is a mistake there. She died in 1843, and she was um, in, a in this display case in Stevens Hospital, and later was donated to, to our collection. Why is that important? Because Edward H. Bennett, who was the curator of pathology and the curator of the museum in the 1850s, um, has a patient, a 11-year-old girl, that has these kind of telltale growths on her back. And he says, wait a minute, I know what this is. Um, so he consults with the attending physician and says, do not cut into this body this is what happens to, to these individuals that have this condition. Um, he says it's myositis ossificans. Cutting into, into this child would make her life significantly worse. So even though it's a condition that can only be managed, he helped um, ensure that this, this girl didn't have unnecessary trauma. Uh, and a necessary progression of the disease. And the case study was also published in a few journals. Uh, and this is a modern study of uh, fibrodysplasia. And the, this was done on uh, a specimen in the Mutter Museum where I previously worked um, of Harry Eastlick, who died in the 70s and donated his body to the museum. And it really talks about these, the mechanisms uh, that the, the bone um, is triggered and shapes um, into these kind of cascading structures down the body. They have recently found the gene um, of FOP and they are also um, doing quite a lot of research on the management. So this is Harry Eastlick in the Mutter Museum and Carol Orzel, who died a few years ago and donated her body to the museum as well. Um, in the case on the very side, she included her jewelry. She had a fantastic jewelry collection and she um, uh, wanted to, to include her jewelry. So very much need to be reminded that these are the remains of people that had full lives, even though we, um, don't necessarily relate to their struggle. Um, and we are doing uh, research on our own skeletons. The, this is Adrian Daly um, looking at one of the uh, disarticulated uh, lower limbs of um, Jane Smith. 
And these uh, have been sampled for DNA just to see if the, the gene is the same because there are so many, um, so few patients uh, to do that from. Syphilis. Um, I should probably have given you more of a segue into that. Um, this is a, a skull of um, an individual I just cleaned recently, and this is the the clean the clean result. And what you see on um, these very dark areas on the skull are the result of tertiary syphilis, the the third and final stage of syphilis, the fourth is death. Um, and you can see on the illustration, uh, illustration from our collection here, um, in that stage, um, people start growing these very uh, painful and um, lesions around their face, around their skull, um, and also their limbs as well. And these lesions cause necrosis. So the, um, the tissue around each lesion dies and they create these kind of craters um, that affect even the bone. So you can only imagine what's happening to the internal organs. Um, now we have antibiotics for syphilis, which is wonderful. But at the time they didn't and people would have um, temporary remissions from, from the illness only for it to come back many years later and cause uh, terrible damage, as you can see. Uh, this particular skull, I have no information about, zero. And that is the problem with um, the main challenge that we have with this collection is that we need to do not only research within our collection, but research in other uh, collections around Dublin, around Ireland, and actually uh, the British Isles in general, to really piece together the narratives so we can tell the, the story of this individual as well. Uh, I do believe that he's part of the, or she, uh, was part of the original collection uh, because of the lettering on the top, that font we see in the wax, uh, uh, the wax models as well from that era. Um, this is a more modern uh, skull of an individual with syphilis. I do not know that they, there is any uh, connection between the woman portrayed there. Uh, I do know they had a similar presentation of these lesions um, on the face and you can really see just, just what the illness does. This portrait is part of our collection as well and it depicts um, um, a woman in Dublin, and it's entirely possible that she was a patient in the Lock Hospital on Hume Street that later became the skin and cancer uh, clinic. Um, Lock hospitals were hospitals where people that had communicable uh, diseases and usually were seen as uh, and one that were kept away from society, but at the same time provided care. Um, so a lot of prostitutes were, were in law hospitals as well. Um, the Royal College of Physicians, um, sorry, the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland has a remarkable collection of beautiful, very, um, earnest uh, portraits of, of these uh, patients. And I urge you to look up the, the Wallace collection if you have spare time and are more interested in syphilis. And you should be, because this is the rising of, of outbreaks in Ireland. Um, we actually had, a, in 2021, we had a public uh, proclamation of um, a syphilis outbreak, uh, syphilis outbreak emergency with over 200 cases. Um, and because of the pandemic and people not wanting to visit hospitals, not wanting to seek care, we also saw more advanced presentations of syphilis. Um, hopefully nothing quite as bad as a, a third stage, but it's important to know what, how the disease progresses and how it affects the body. Um, 
because it's very much uh, an issue today now too. Um, I spoke a little bit about that um, and about DNA analysis. We now have remarkable technology that can allow us to look into pathogens in remains such as ours. Uh, this is um, a cholera specimen from the Mütter Museum, and I, I took this picture. Um, and they were able to sample cholera that related to um, the 1849 outbreak in Philadelphia. Now, 1849 might make you think of a very um, horrific time here. 1847 uh, is the, uh, the darkest year of the Great Famine. And the outbreak at the time in Philadelphia was um, blamed on Irish uh, migrants. Uh, so if we were able to find such pathogens in our collection, we would be able to prove or disprove that theory. And that could allow us to say that the famine didn't only have uh, a terrible effect on the population of Ireland, but it affected the world globally. Um, so that is a research that we are hopefully about to embark on, um, but the pandemic and travel constraints have made that hard, but it's definitely, it's in the works. Um, so what are we doing now with the collection? We are trying to, like I said, um, catalog it, uh, research it, and curate it for not just medical students, not for just physicians, but for you and I. Um, and I say I because I just have an MFA. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, but I've picked up a few things over time. Um, but we want to, to curate the collection in a holistic way and tell these stories, tell these stories that affect not just medicine, not just the body, but the social fabric of society in general. Um, and we want to really focus on interdisciplinary research. We want to bring social science and the arts um, to work with us um, with the collection. And you see there uh, not just um, sufferers of the same diseases, but students. Um, that is a, a senior year uh, high school student at the top, um, scientists on the bottom, interns in the middle, and then art students, uh, the very um, uh, large, um, sorry, the very uh, last picture, the square one. What is keeping us from doing it right now? Well, there is a very large and very ambitious project called the E3 uh, Learning Foundry. And you see the building at the very bottom um, with uh, the skylight, that is our museum. And the building next to it, right next to it, uh, with the green, uh, the small rectangle of green uh, in front of it, that's our uh, dissection hall and lecture theater. Um, these spaces used to look like this. Um, again, 1956 made uh, a change from the uh, 19th century, and I have some feelings about that, um, <laughs> mostly aesthetically based, but it is part of, of history as well. Um, and you see here that the uh, history of anatomy is very much brought into the room with these murals uh, showing the muscle men from Vesalius's Fabrica. Fortunately, this is what it, they look like now. Uh, the botany department and the environmental studies um, are temporarily squatting, so to speak, on our spaces. If you know uh, anything about any campus, really, there is a lot of uh, musical chairs uh, playing, so departments move in and out of spaces, and the, these uh, departments moved into ours when, um, in 2011, when the move happened to TBSI. So until the uh, learning foundry is complete, we cannot reclaim those spaces, and we cannot properly um, store the collection and properly care for it. So it's very uh, important for us to, to make that happen. 
soon as possible because this is what we would like to have. We would like to have a Trinity College Medical Heritage Center. Um, and that will include, um, of course, our lecture theater. Uh, we, it will include an archive and dry conservation lab, a reading room for researchers, uh, wet specimen storage, uh, bone storage, uh, the anthropometric laboratory collection would move out from under the lecture theater where it says skull passage that's where it is right now and um, it would move into a proper curated space that will tell that story um, and we would keep the 1825 museum gallery as kind of a, a time capsule but curated for for a modern audience um, would also allow us to have uh, temporary exhibitions hold classes. Um, so that is what is in, on, on stake for us now. Um, we have submitted a proposal with the university. It has passed the first stages of the approval process. And now we are waiting to see where it goes next. Uh, in the meantime, we are working on virtual exhibitions, uh, trying to share our collection as much as possible. Um, this is called Pestilence, the History of Pandemics in Ireland, that includes some of the specimens I talked about, for example, the syphilis um, specimens, and it will also kind of bring together um, the very long history of pandemics, uh, dating back to 489, I believe, um, to today, uh, so it's not an unprecedented event in any way that we went through. Uh, it's a very much precedented. And we would like to welcome the public. Like I said, uh, this is the Muta Museum and they have about 130,000 visitors every year. Uh, this is the Riga Anatomy Museum in Latvia. Uh, it was recently um, founded and this is Surgeon's Hall, hello cat, <laughs> uh, Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh. This is the most popular museum in Edinburgh. And if you've been to Edinburgh, you know it has absolutely fantastic museums. They're everywhere, they're incredible. However, the museum with the human specimens and human anatomy and the human stories is the most popular museum in the city. Why is that? Because we all have bodies and we all need to have access to what we look like, uh, what affects our bodies. We all need medical education that is readily available and curated to be understandable to people that don't have um, the background that medical students do. Uh, we know from the pandemic that medical education is a big issue and we hope to um, be able to share that knowledge with everyone. Um, we are close to the public because of those constraints I mentioned, but you can visit us virtually through the Trinity Trails app, little plug there, um, and there is a fantastic audio tour of the outside of the building telling a little bit about our history and there are also virtual tours of uh, two over space. So if you have any questions, um, feel free to email us, oldanatomy at TCD. And we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, I just got two fantastic interns that are here in the audience today, and we hope to have a more active social media thanks to them um, as they are doing research in the collection and producing text for that. Um, so please follow us. And thank you so much for your attention and time. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much.